Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Hollywood Podcast, covering the latest in film, TV, streaming, and social media. I'm your host, Max Geshwind. Stay tuned for today's episode. All right. Hello, everyone, and thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. And I'm so grateful to have with me today um, some of the team behind All Man, the International Mail story, which is the brand new documentary behind International Mail magazine. It just premiered at Outfest yesterday, and I'm so glad to have the team with me right now. We have Peter Jones, the writer-producer, Jesse Reed, and Brian Darling, who are the directors and producers, and then Parvesh China, who um, is a commentator about the magazine featured in the documentary. So, <laughs> Thank you all so much for chatting with me today. Hi. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you for having us. So I want to start at the beginning, which I believe was sometime during the summer of 2019 when, Peter, this was brought to you as a potential idea by then one of your editors, who is Brian um, Darling, um, who worked with you on a PBS project. Can you talk to me about that initial conversation that you both had um, regarding this project and Peter, why you felt like you needed to um, tell the story of the magazine. Brian and I were under incredible pressure to do this episode, the final episode of a series that was already airing on PBS stations. And it was the last episode, but we had two weeks because we knew people were going to be watching it. So we had long hours. And at some point he had told me about something he was working on moonlighting. Uh, international mail. And I was intrigued because I was an international mail customer. I bought a, I bought a black fishnet tank top and a leopard a pair of gym shorts. And so that was how my life began with international mail. He told me about meeting Jesse and they had done 25 interviews. I counted them 25 interviews with people like Parfish with ex employees and what they didn't have was an interview with Gene Burkhart, the founder. And so I, because I've had experience, I've done this before, and I earned Gene's trust by sending him some documentaries on people that he'd heard of, like Johnny Carson and especially Betty Davis. Uh, and I told him, I said, Gene, people really still care about this catalog, even though he thought, who gives a damn? And I mentioned that Brian and Jesse had 12,000 Instagram follower, followers for international mail. I hadn't even made the movie yet. And so, uh, yeah, I think I earned his trust. And his assistant, Gloria Tomita, who is 93, now 95, said, oh, Gene, let's do this thing. The whole thing was like a fairy tale. And as I said last night, Gene started singing because he sings at the drop of a pair of uh, Speedos. Fairy tales can come true. It can happen to you if you're young at heart. And I thought, okay, that'll be the song we use to end credits. And we're going to tell this story like a fairy tale. So that's that's my part in it. <laughs> So Brian and Jesse, you already had all these interviews from people like Parvish and other people who um, were really influenced by the magazine and the staff before this even went to Gene via Peter. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. <clears throat> wow. Yeah. So can you talk about sort of um, how you found um, these, you know, people in pop culture, but also people who were um, part of um 
international mail back in the day, how you found these people that were um, so integral to the publication? So, I mean, the, the nice thing about international mail was, you know, well, the nice thing about being a documentary filmmaker is the story is always changing by the people you meet and the sort of journey you go on as a filmmaker and as a team. And I think early on, we were, you know, just early days finding out the story. So we connected with um, Dennis Morey, the former senior art director, and a few of the models, and we just started doing interviews. And as we were doing these interviews, the story was just getting bigger and bigger, much bigger than the, the sort of original conceptualization of it, which was a story about gay men's relationship to this magazine and coming out. And I think that that was sort of an amazing journey um, to sort of collect these stories and to become part of the international family, so to speak. I mean, I think it's rare, but to have a, 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 an employer where most of the employees say it's like the best job they ever had, and they have like a Facebook page where they all stay in touch and they have many reunions. And so we were welcomed into this sort of family over time and got to know a whole range of individuals. Um, and they helped shape the story, you know. And this, part band, this band of outsiders, as we would internally refer yeah. to them as. Um, and Parvish interesting. Was, yeah, go ahead, Brian. I was, I was just going to say, one of the interesting things that happened throughout this was, you know, for approaching other people besides the staff uh, and the models, anyone who worked at International Mail or worked with them, one thing that we found fascinating is you would mention to people, you know, if I say International Mail, what comes to mind? I remember I would ask people that a lot and people would stop and think and be, and, and you'd see their face totally change. And they would say, oh my God, I haven't thought about that in so many years, but, and then this stream would just come out of all of these memories, all of these experiences they had, you know, um, generally as adolescents, you know, these men as adolescents that would have them, but even women, you know, would talk about, oh, I, rem I remember one woman, said that she would cut out the, the pages and put them on her wall, you know? Um, and for men, of course, you know, I mean, one really great example is with getting Carson Kressley, um, you know, he had a book signing for a book that had just come out. And Jesse was like, he called me, he's like, do you think I should go and like go to this book signing and ask him? And I said, Fuck yeah, get out there, girl. Go ask him. You know, what is the worst thing he's gonna do with nothing, you know? But anyway, so Jesse goes out there and he's goes has his turn at the book signing and says, If I say international mail, does that mean anything to you? Or say, and he just completely lit up and went into all of these stories. And and Jesse asked, We were making a documentary, would you you know, do an interview with us. And he said, yes, right then. And his PR person was right there. And next thing you know, we had that lined up probably within a month. The, you know, the most amazing part of that too was from then on, you know, Carson, along with everybody who's been a part of this, you know, with Parvesh and Drew Drogi, everybody's been an enormous supporter and been completely available. Um, I mean, it was phenomenal, you know. 
So I, I just wanted to say that what I found, what we found was it, international mail has been laying just below the consciousness for a long time. Like nobody thought about it. No one's aware of it. But the minute you bring it up, all of these memories and experiences are triggered. And I think that's, you know, I, when we were making the film, I noticed that. And that's why I said, when this happens, when this film comes out, it's going to really hit people because they've not thought about it. And the minute they see this film is out, they're going to be like, oh my gosh, you know? And so thankfully that's what happened or right. is happening, I should say. Yeah. And along with Carson, Parvesh, you're someone who's featured in the documentary. Can you talk a little bit about how you were approached to be in the documentary and um, your relationship with International Mail through the years? Yeah, I, um, I'm a longtime friend of Jesse's, friend of the whole family. Mom, mm-hmm. sister's an old friend to Emily. And so when Jesse approached, and you know, Jesse, we've just known you, you see Jesse out, we were, you know, we'd go to Akbar and everything. And when he mentioned International Mail, I was like, what do you know? Like, because it was this secret, believe it or not, because like when I was approached, you know, when we did the interview a few, few years back now, like, and I, I joke, like I see how dark my beard is in the film to know the passage of time. But the key thing for me is like, I almost f- felt like, wait, wait, how do you know about my private like masturbation stash from like the mid nineties? What are you talking about, Jesse? <laughs> but it really did awaken things. And I remember honestly, when I did the interview years ago, just, I mean, we've had a Trump since then, and we've had a lot more political awakening in our country. And I remember being even an out, out actor, Indian American, I got a little nervous for a moment, like I'm going to reveal. And because back then I thought, oh, it's just going to be a bunch of actors and people of note, Simon Doonan, you know, from like Barney's and everything, talking about when they would masturbate. I literally thought that's where the genesis of the film was going to go. And so I shared our stories like Frank DeCaro wonderfully did. I got to sit in between Frank and uh, Drew Drogi at the premiere at Outfest. But the biggest thing about International Mail is the story of the people behind it. And it's how it treads that history you cannot talk about 1980s into 90s gay life in america or the world without addressing what i call the plague the aids crisis and all man did that so beautifully i tip my hat to all of you because when i saw it in tribeca for the first time i wept and i know frank and drew and i were all a little emotional when like you know when peter maury is like sharing his stories about the people who have lost you know it just we know that like it's an in we all have this little like gay men um, people by poly curious men over the years have had this thing where like oh free porn is coming to my mailbox every month no mom that's not for you give it to me i'll be back 20 minutes in the bathroom don't knock (laughs) so like we've all done that so it was just really great to see like it's not just that there's always when you think you know five percent of anything there's 95 percent that gets to be revealed and I'm so grateful to be a part. And I love these uh, gentlemen and all the women. I got to meet Gloria in uh, New York. And of course, I was like, no, now everyone's telling me she's in her mid 90s. I'm like, what? Like 72 tops. But it just she was warm and kind and welcoming, too. And it was just great to see like, oh, another Asian person is kind of behind international mail. So it was just it's more diverse than you think, too. And I'm just very happy to be a part. 
as someone who obviously didn't work for international mail, but was a consumer of international mail and <laughs> sort of grew up with it. Um, consumer. And can you talk about, because you're an actor, you're in the entertainment industry and the film definitely focuses on the pop culture influence that the publication had in film and TV. Did you walk away from the documentary sort of with it opening your eyes up to the influence around you in the industry that you're working in, in the fashion sensibilities of actors in film and TV that you hadn't really noticed before the documentary? Absolutely. I mean, the fact that the puffy shirt from Seinfeld is from International Mail. International Mail is in the Smithsonian. You know, like that is, it is you know, and the, the fact that like when Gene and others were talking about like how like the studios were buying two or three or four at a time. Because remember, everyone wants like, I guess like how international mail must have been like H&M was, you know, for like, well, here's a new kind of trendy thing. You get a bunch of it, you know, and, you know, that's not even to say anything about fast fashion or, you know, how this is also pre-internet, you know, international mail, this catalog, when they talk about how the stores in West Hollywood and San Diego would be meetups for people. I'm like, of course, because this is pre Adam for Adam and Manhunt and gay.com. And I am not on any of those anymore, even though they do have iPhone, Apple apps. I'm just saying that's out in the world, but this is still pre that, you know, like there's this still like that, uh, you know, you saw men being sexy and pretty. And I know like how Gene also didn't like want it to as an, he's a gay man, but he didn't want it to be, I know from the story, like he didn't want it to be so gay, but of course all of us gay kids were like, this is gay for us. You know, we would never see men in, as Peter mentioned, the leopard print thongs, you know, I could never, I did not have the courage as a 12 year old in Chicago suburbs, closeted gay man, you know, like to buy the stuff, but I just cherished those uh, materials so well. And don't forget, there's some other famous people who actually modeled in said magazine, Shamar Moore of SWAT and Young and Restless fame, you know, like we, he was one of the models. So like, I can see like why a lot of pretty people models no less and one last thing too is like it was just really great to hear that international mail the catalog the you know people behind it paid the male models more than like editorial or vogue and cosmo were doing back then so this was a place also for working hot men <laughs> to get paid you know like they joked the models themselves brian john everyone you know a lot of them were even there they talked about how you know we didn't get paid we got paid yeah great i mean like the new like uh, what did they talk a lot about like Gautier and like Versace and such like mm -hmm. but they got paid at international mail so I also left thinking like all right at least some men getting their start in like male model fashion you know this is before the Tyson Beckfords even like before we knew those guys like this is still like all right my bread and butter was made modeling for this mm -hmm. Peter, you talked about earlier how it was you that conducted the Gene Burkhart interview after Brian and Jesse brought to you all this um, footage that they accumulated over the years of all these interviews. You, you really included the very necessary component of getting um, the creator of International Mail and having him involved in the project. Can you talk about what it was like meeting Gene and um, how open he was to being a part of this? John and Jesse, uh, we all talk about legitimacy as an issue. And I want to get the story right, but I believe they approached him talking about the LGBT aspect of international mail and a big thing about Gene. And one of his first quotes is, well, I wanted to appeal to gay men. I wanted to appeal 
to all men. And that inspired the title in part, all man, also all mankind, because it's for everybody. And Gene appreciated that I was interested in the idea of someone who didn't rely on focus groups or, you know, algorithms or anything. He just used his, his own good taste in terms of making decisions. And if he fell on his face, he'd just move on to the next thing. He said, yeah, you know, I get an idea. I do it. If it didn't work out, bleh. And Gloria was the same way. You know, she said, we, we just made everything up as we went along. And they treated, under pressure, they treated each other well. People under pressure sometimes don't do that. What I saw that day when I was beginning to just earn their trust was two people. They were each other's best friend. And when it came the time when I knew, oh, they're going to finally do this. And I'm so excited. Uh, we were all kind of relaxed and went to lunch. And it was so fun just to see them being best friends. I mean, Jean had a ton of relationships. Uh, Gloria was married three times, but they were each other's best friends. And both of them had had these traumatic stories early in their lives with Jean being in the bar and hiding under a under a table and not getting busted and put on the front page of the Chicago Tribune newspaper where they put your name and address and age. Come on. And Gloria, Pearl Harbor Day, you know, her, her community where she played the piano in church, someone just yelling, there's one of them now. She'd never experienced anything like that before. Her father was going to be sent to an internment camp. They showed up on December 8th, a Monday knocked on the door and he managed to stay because they saw he was an engineer and was a builder and they put him to work. Had they not made that decision, she would have had her father ripped away from her and he would have gone to an internment camp. So this was a big deal. So I thought Jean and Gloria each had some traumatic experience. I want the audience to know that going in because they had more in common than they thought. Mm -hmm. um, the documentary definitely focuses on the transition once Jean Burkhart left the publication in like the mid 80s and went to Hanover, how the publication changed and wanted to be more mainstream and appealed to all men. I guess there was a fear that it was too gay, the publication. Um, I, I guess this is for any of you guys, but maybe Peter, since you spoke with Gene, can you talk about the feelings he had in that transition and what he thought of International Mail when it was under Hanover? His, yeah. Gene was, I can say this now because it would have been a different film. Yeah. Gloria, he, Gene thought he couldn't do this with all his friends who had passed away from AIDS. He was scared he couldn't run the company. Gloria, was not. She wanted to put Jean on a cruise around the world and Gloria Tomita wanted to run International Mail for however long it took for Jean to get over being burnt out and for him to see she can handle it. So he was done and he was afraid, but he also had $24 million in his pocket. And I think he watched from a distance, but I also thought, you know, he just wanted to enjoy life. I don't think he paid that much attention, you know, to it, my feeling. You guys would certainly know about that. Yeah, Jesse, Brian. <clears throat> I think that what's interesting about the story is like 
thematic. I, I think that I think that for Gene, you know, international mail was his baby. It was like his his idea and Gloria too. And we we see that sort of intimacy on the screen and the telling of the story. I think like whenever you let go to some let go of something you've created, there's always some bittersweet and sort of questions. I mean, one thing that I was always taken by with Gene is that when we first met him up until his last breath, he was always thinking like he was an inventor. He was a guy that like wanted to create things. And that's what he wanted to do with international mail. He really wanted to sort of change the way men could express themselves out in the world. And I really admired that about him. I think what the catalog, it's funny, like we as filmmakers face this too with, uh, you know, sort of like it's a gay catalog, it's a gay thing. And I think throughout the entire sort of um, era, all the different eras of international mail, they were sort of toiling or exploring this question. What's interesting is that what happens in the sort of mom and pop Gene and Gloria era, which is just this very intuitive, instinctive way of operating and creating something in the world becomes much more corporate for the lack of a better word, where they're really like sort of looking at images and like, does this work for a gay audience? Does this work for a straight audience? And that's how we're evolving as a culture too. This question of, of the, what the catalog is or was is something they all are really exploring and it's because that's why it was so important to contextualize this and what was happening in our culture of how we were exploring sexuality and we were exploring masculinity and we were exploring you know really what does it mean to be a man and the, these questions are still being explored um yeah Sorry, I think to, to bring it back in some way to what you're asking also about gene and selling. And I think, you know, one thing to, to consider is, you know, gene was really not interested in business in any way, really at all. For him, it was really the act of making something. And I think it was the act of making something and having these people. And also he loved having, being able to give people jobs, you know, and, 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 he was enormously generous. You know, he became a very big, uh, one of the uh, one of the you know founding donors of um, of Mama's Kitchen uh, in San Diego, which at the time was giving um, meals for people with AIDS in uh, San Diego. I mean, <clears throat> I think when you look at this and the timing of the sale. Um, I, I think like it, it was a confluence of things, but ultimately, yeah, I think, you know, when you look at it, I know when we talked to him about it, there was definitely a bittersweetness about selling it. He always, in some ways, he would talk to Dennis, Dennis Mori, who was a good friend of his senior art director. He would always say, you know, almost like, let's get the band back together. Let's do this again. And everyone was like, Oh, that's a lot of work. <laughs> like, you know, like, but you know, I, you know, and he, but ultimately, I think it was the right decision in a lot of ways, because, again, for him, these were his friends. It, again, you know, and when he saw how sick his friends were becoming, he just didn't see how he could ever move forward with it. And I think for him personally, it, this wasn't a business to him. This was a personal form of sort of expression, personal relationship situation. So, 
I think you know, selling it was more than just, um, I think selling it didn't have, in a lot of ways, it didn't have anything to do with business. I mean, though I will say one thing too, I do know that also the business aspect of it was just becoming so overwhelming in the sense of them having to organize and sort of institutionalize and needing a lot more professional people. And it, the business was just getting too big. And I think what happens when something like that happens, you start to be a little more removed from it. Yeah. And he didn't want that. So, yeah. Yeah. It was just amazing to um, see Gene and have him be a part of this documentary. It's hard to imagine, you know, it without him and to have gotten him Peter right before his passing is just incredible. And it's just, it, it, it's a, yeah. Like I said, you can't imagine have, having watched this without his insights and his voice. Um, Lauren said that, you know, he started to fail about, two months after that wow. interview. Wow. So it, it's a blessing. We wouldn't be here were it not for him being able to do that interview and be so vital and both of them be so vital. Um, Brian, you mentioned before how you would ask people, you know, what comes to mind when you hear the phrase international male. And for me, it's men around the globe. It's, you know, men, you know, of different backgrounds. And that's a blind spot that um, you touched on in the documentary with International Mail, where it would mainly just be white dudes, and it really wouldn't capture, you know, the essence of that phrase, International Mail. Um, can you touch on sort of um, what you found in the history of, I guess, the publication's ongoing efforts to try but then fail to um, attempt to bring about diversity um, amongst their models? Yeah, I mean, I think, so, you know, there's a few things that are happening with this. Uh, one of the things I found interesting is when Parvesh was speaking earlier, he said, it's more diverse than you think. And that's because behind the catalog, it was enormously diverse. Mm -hmm. It was, it was a lot of women. It was a lot of gay men. There were straight men too. And, you know, and, but it was a really diverse group of ethnicities and gender and uh, sexual orientation of all these people coming together to do this. When it came to the catalog, yeah, I mean, if you look at really early issues of the catalog, there's actually more diversity than mm. you'd think in the early 70s catalogs. Um, it changes in the 80s. Now, there's always the, you know, the black model or as as Parvesh says, you know, you have the one Latino guy or whatnot, you know, and when we approach this, I mean, it's obvious when you look at it with how we look at things today, you look at it and you're like, wow, this is very white and what happened. And so it was a question, you know, we were all constantly asking and I remember asking it multiple times to to the people who were involved it was one of our main questions and there were a few things that were happening one i think if you look at what is going on in our society at the time there are not there's not a lot of representation in general of anything other than white people for a very long time and in the 70s and 80s i think this is you know uh, a very very obvious thing and so i think part of it was there weren't also a ton of availability of models because they weren't being given the opportunities to come into, you know, 
into the industry. And also the flip side, people weren't thinking of that we need to have people of color in it. So I think that was one aspect of it. Uh, I think that also, well, I know that once things in the 80s, they started using computers, they literally would figure out what model sold what. And if it was on a black model and it didn't sell, well, then you go with a different model because it's all about sales. Now, does this, what does this say about international mail as much as also, what does it actually say about our culture, right? I think that's the thing. Like you can easily say and look at this and say, well, where are the black people and where are all the people of color in this, well, you know, these models and men. But I think also you have to look at like, what is society choosing to find attractive, choosing to find that they want to purchase? And that was uh, always a battle. Um, you know, the art directors were trying to get men of color into the catalog. Uh, but then the data would come back that they didn't sell. And so the marketing department was, we switched to somebody else. Uh, you know, by the 90s, it's changing. And also by the 90s, that's changing in our culture. So these things parallel. They're, they're not, I, 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 don't blame, I don't blame anybody at the catalog. Uh, you know, I don't, but I think when you start tracking what is happening in our society uh, and you look at international mail, it's a reflection of these things. So by the 90s, wow. I mean, diversity is really much bigger. Um, and you give people like Shamar Moore and a lot of other men are in this catalog. So, yeah, I mean, that's just what, that's what we found in, in the course of it. But, you know, yeah. Bad pop in there. Yeah, too, yeah, yeah. I think you literally see me on film, like kind of discovering it. Like, were there black people? Where did this? Yeah. And then it's a comment on my own. Because this is, this is the, this is why the phrase representation matters. It's because when you are a gay young man of color, child of immigrants, the majority culture in this country dictates what is pretty, what is hot. I didn't see normal heart on stage, but I know in the movie, it starts with them shaving in the 80s. And I'm like, fuck, this is where it all started. This is when like all you white seals with your smoothness and or my fellow Eastern Asian friends, you know, like uh, growing up as a hairy, I think I started getting like chest hair at like 10. You know, like it was hard because you want to be what is beautiful. And I've said this before, this has been my my thesis since like Trump and everything, but my comedy and art has been in service of white supremacy. I make, I would distance myself from other gay people and distance myself from other Indian people. Cause I wanted to be white. I wanted to be part of the majority. I'm not like those other Indians. I'm not like those other gay people. I'm straight acting. Right. So that you can't help but think about like, Oh, well, you know, there are publications like this that do kind of foster it. It's bittersweet, you know, like as Brian mentioned, like by the 90s, you know, there is more influx. But we do know that the 80s was this time of very like I joke, I call it the seal, very white, very smooth. It was just and and obviously, you know, when they talk about the phallic, the hard body representation of the, you know, emboldened, you know, like just an embodiment of the penis. I'm like, shit, for chubby, hairy, short guys like me, you know, it was just like not represented at all. And I do know that that my like arousal template, what I think is attractive, was fashioned by a lot of these publications. And when you do see, and I'm forgive me, but the youth of today who are 
poly, bi, you know, gender norms are gone. You know, we know gender is a construct. Hair, body hair, back, shoulder hair and everything. Like I let go of my European wax center. Uh, if anyone needs, I've got like four, <laughs> four sessions left because we don't even have beauty and, and what we think is beautiful has changed so much. So please know, like, I see myself in the youth of like what I thought was hot there. And now like, there's this kind of sense of like, wow, I do hope that when we, if the next international person, you know, can be, that catalog can be so much more and different for other people. But it is interesting, like you do encapsulate, this is a time period piece. You know, this is not a thing. We can't go back and say, wish we wish it was more woke and everything. And why didn't we have more like Indian or mixed race people? That's just how America was, you know, and we're fighting it even today. There are people who are fighting back on our cultural norms and cultural expression and sexual freedom. So it is just this thing of like that added layer of all this. And then to learn that Gloria Tamita is the vice president of this, you know, is, I mean, that, that is a whole like other mind fuck on top of so many things about just like how many layers upon layers when at the end of the day, sometimes you just need to pay rent. You yeah. got to pay. And when they talked about it, Gene could only, you know, like sometimes they were only paying the rent or like at least that was solid. Like you understand. Please. Peter. I wanted to jump in because how we handled, especially in this BLM world and PC world where we're all being so careful and we have names and we have LGBTQI plus whatever. I wanted to make sure we represented the way it was then. And to have that whole section, it's three minutes and 21 seconds and we don't have any music under there because I wanted these people who were there commenting. Arm, uh, Omar, Alberto, just sitting there thinking, I don't remember too many. Were there any? I don't remember any black faces. And then it goes to Parvesh. Were, were, were there any? So you're seeing in real time, as you said, you were coming upon your own. Oh, that's right. Just guys maybe that looked like Lorenzo and Lamas. And then it goes to Maureen saying, well, and then sounding defensive of the corporate thing. Well, well, well if there were any, uh, you, you know, we would hide them because, I mean, uh, we, we, we tried, we tried. And then it goes to Dennis. You know, in my six years there, uh, we hired two black models. The point was, is that the clothes that they wearing didn't were wearing didn't sell. It all came down to marketing. And then it jumped to uh, Drew talking about the people's images of seeing these men and feeling bad about themselves. It was so important to address the other side of this idea of the Adonises and that whole section, there's no music because I just wanted these people who really were living it to tell us about things that we now superimpose our sensibility of today on everything. So I wanted these people who lived it to say everything without any music, without anything, but just their own words and see that questioning happening on camera. Right. Absolutely. Um, I think Parvesh, you mentioned the normal heart earlier, and that got me thinking Matt Bomer, who serves as the narrator um, for this documentary. Um, I, I don't know who, I guess we can go to who, whoever wants to take it, but um, could someone talk about how you decided on Matt serving as the narrator? He he had such a great voice in, you know, guiding us through the story of International Mail, but it also seemed a bit um, 
funny given the sense that he he seems like someone that if he was around in the 80s could have modeled for international <laughs> male probably um so it seems very on the nose in that regard but um yeah could you just talk about how matt got involved in he he because he said yes And he wasn't a pain in the ass to deal with. And we are so grateful because some of the names that we were tossing around, what's, what's his name? Who is in the Marvel uh, Ezra Miller? Mm. My God, thank God he didn't, you know, we thought about him because, Oh, that'll be edgy. (laughs) Wow. You dodged one there. Uh, (laughs) I didn't documentary about Johnny Carson, uh, Kevin Spacey was my narrator, but you oh. never see him on camera. Oh, no, Peter. <laughs> no. You're not picking any narrators ever again. No. I, I know. But the point is, that <laughs> was just like, oh, I love the catalog. I admire your work. Sure, I'll do it. And we knew he wouldn't be any trouble. That's great. Any trouble. He, I was, you know, when we were, we spent a lot. <laughs> it was about probably at least a year, at least a year figuring out who the narrator was going to be. And, and, you know, there was even conversations back, like, should it be a woman? Maybe should it be someone, should it be a British person? Should it be, you know, and we were all over like trying to figure out, cause who's the voice of all man, <laughs> you know, like when you have this name and you're trying to figure out some of it was, should we have multiple narrators that represent different types of men? You know, there was a lot of conversation around how, who and how and what, and the big thing was, is we wanted somebody, I, I think ultimately we, we wanted something more than straight identified. I, I, that was like, I think the number one thing yeah. in the end that we one of one of that. And also it just was like, you know, we had a short list of people and we looked and we, we discussed this over and over and over again. <laughs> and I think it, with Matt, you know, Matt's a very sweet, guy i actually right. just finished working on a show with him um that's coming out this sometime later this year called echoes the ultimately what what was so wonderful about him and again like i said we we had this list and we were constantly going back and forth and discussing who and what and how and and you know it just it was synchronicity that it just ended up we ended with ended up with matt i mean you know we went out to him and he said yes and we were like, wow, great, you know? Uh, and it just fit and he fit and he was beautiful. I mean, he was, it was all done in and out in, in like an hour, I think maybe, you know, like, so, I mean, ultimately, yeah, I, it just, I think it's one of those things to where you can sit there and like I said, you have a year's worth of discussions going back and forth and deciding who is the voice literally of all man. Uh, and then, synchronicity happens things just come together and you know and this is this is where it went and we actually matt was on a list that was actually given to us by an agency of people that they said here are people we have that we think would be great for your film Mm -hmm. and when we saw his name on it we were like that works (laughs) so yeah yeah definitely um, and Jesse and Peter, I guess you two can have this last question. You know, the documentary just premiered at uh, Outfest yesterday. Can you both talk to me about that experience, what the reception was like and what it meant sharing your um, sharing this project at Outfest, which is such a iconic LGBT film festival? Jesse? 
I mean, for me, Outfest, <clears throat> when I moved to LA 11 years ago, was one of the first things I discovered. And it was just so inspiring to me to see all these films and have the opportunity to meet directors and have these Q and A's. And I really fell in love with like the film festival itself. And in many ways it helped inspire me to start becoming a filmmaker. You know, I was trained as an artist and I work as a designer and I always felt like my work isn't quite there yet. And, and, you know, this, this document, this film that we all created is the perfect collision of things for me in terms of being culturally relevant, really looking and taking apart culture and also being visually sort of engaging and beautiful. So the ability to share, sorry, this is a long-winded answer, the ability to sort of share this film at Outfest feels incredibly special to me as a first-time filmmaker and to see all those faces in the audience. And I don't know, it was really wonderful. Yeah. And Peter, anything oh, to add? And for me as a third generation Angelino and as a legacy of Hollywood, my grandfather was a director. He directed a movie called uh, Random Harvest and he won an Oscar for Mrs. Miniver during the war and The Good Earth. And for me to be in the Directors Guild watching a film, and I was just thinking about my family, and I was thinking about, my God, this screen is so beautiful, and the sound is so incredible. And I was, and that, that we went to the party at the Chateau Marmont afterwards, which was built in 1927, the year the Academy was founded, and Beverly Hills was incorporated as the city where my mother was born. It was a big personal full circle kind of thing connecting me with my my childhood and my legacy. Wow, that's amazing. Um, well, congratulations, everyone. Jesse, Peter, Brian, Parvesh, who was just with us. Um, so thank you all so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please take a moment to subscribe to The Hollywood Podcast for free on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Max Geshwind. Thanks for listening.